0: I'm Ben Horton, and you're listening to Undercurrents, the podcast from Chatham House. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Undercurrents. Thank you very much for joining me. It's just me this week, actually, in the Chatham House Media Studio, and I'm here to bring you a conversation that I've just finished recording with two academics about race, philanthropy and the founding of what's termed the White World Order by a group of organisations at the start of the 20th century in the United States and across the pond here in the UK. With me, I have Maribel Murray, who is the founding director of the Miami Institute for Social Sciences and the author of White Philanthropy, Carnegie Corporations, An American Dilemma and the Making of a White World Order, which is published by the University of North Carolina Press and is available now. And I'm also joined to discuss the findings of Murray's book by Inderjeet Palmar, who is a professor of international politics at City University of London and friend of the podcast. So in What Follows, you're going to hear the story of the production of a book which has been the foundation of what's called race relations within the social sciences in the United States since its publication in 1944, which is titled An American Dilemma, The Negro Problem and Modern Democracy by the Swedish sociologist Gunnar Myrdal. It's been described as the most famous and influential study of race ever produced, and while its findings are deeply controversial, as, as you'll hear, and have sparked debate and criticism from all sides of the political spectrum, its influence on the way that race relations has been conceived of in the United States since then has been really, really far-reaching. And it has implications even for today's politics and the way that the issues of race are conceived of. So we discuss where the book came from, who funded it, in particular the involvement of the Carnegie Corporation, a philanthropic organisation which funds projects even today, has funded them for for over 100 years, and basically try to understand what the authors were trying to do with this piece of work and how its implications have reverberated through American policy since. It's a pretty long conversation. We go really deep into the weeds of the origins of An American Dilemma and the way it was received. But I hope that you enjoy it. Okay, so I'm back in the Chatham House Media Studio on a very, very cold November London Day. And I'm joined down the line from presumably sunny Florida, hopefully sunny Florida, (laughs) by Maribel Moray, the founding executive director of the Miami Institute for Social Sciences. Maribel's new book is titled White Philanthropy, Carnegie Corporations and American Dilemma and the Making of a White World Order. And it's available now from the University of North Carolina Press. And we're here to really dig into these themes Basically, this fascinating work from 100 years ago, almost called An American Dilemma, thinking about the implications for how think tanks and corporate foundations at the start of the 20th century really thought about this question of race relations, which is something that obviously Chatham House is deeply implicated with, along with the Carnegie Corporation. So Maribel, thank you so much for joining me today.
1: Thank you so much, Ben. Thank you. Thanks for having me.
0: And joining us for this conversation in person, which is lovely, although doesn't seem particularly enamoured of the temperature in this room, (laughs) I have with me a friend of the podcast, Inderjeet Palmar. Inderjeet's Professor of International Politics at City, University of London, and a visiting professor at the London School of Economics at the moment. And he's the author of many fantastic publications, including particularly relevant for this discussion – Think tanks and power in foreign policy, which came out back in 2004. Indijit was also the first ever guest on Undercurrents. So if you want to go back to <laughs> series one, oh, yeah, back in 2018, <laughs> yeah. a renowned time. So check out that episode. Inderjeet, thanks so much for coming. I'm back. very happy thanks to be here. Listening. Thanks, Ben. All right. So let's kick off this conversation then with just a bit of background, if you don't mind, Maribel. So. Your book focuses largely on the work of the Carnegie Corporation and the activities that the organization funded in the early part of the 20th century. Could you just give us a reminder for those of us who might not be aware, what is the Carnegie Corporation? Where did it come from?
1: So I think there, Ben, we should start with Andrew Carnegie himself. So as many would know, he's a a Scottish-American steel titan from the Gilded Age. And he wrote this book called Gospel of Wealth, 1889, where he was thinking through his role as a philanthropist. What is philanthropy and what role could he play after accumulating un- unprecedented amounts of wealth? Again, this wealth was accrued through labor practices that some many people, uh, many of his contemporaries found objectionable, uh, breaking up strikes through violent means. Letting go of workers when there wasn't a the demand, bringing them back. So he was a very, as they would say in the time, like a controversial figure. He then was also thinking about the role he could play um, as far as redistributing this wealth. So he saw, much like his critics, problems in society, including labor relations, and how to solve them. He proposed philanthropy as an alternative to socialism. So he said, no, you do not need to, and he wrote about this in Gospel of Wealth, you know, you do my fellow Americans, for example, you do not need to vote in a socialist because we can maintain all the benefits of a capitalist society, all the incentives of it, of of really pushing people to to work their hardest and still solve these problems. And we could do this by keeping this money in the hands of those who knew how to accrue it best. They're the ones who are going to know how to redistribute it best. And that's where he um, really teases out this and proposes philanthropy as a good solution to um, the problems of the private sector. And Carney Corporation of New York was his wealthiest of foundations. So he was already establishing foundations in the early 1900s. He was just so wealthy that it was just, the money was going to be, it was going to be impossible for him to just let go of this wealth in his lifetime. So his lawyer suggested that he established this larger one, Kearney Corporation of New York, with the broadest aim that he had given any organization at the time, which was to promote the advancement and diffusion of knowledge and understanding among the people of the U.S. And between 1911 and 1912, he endowed the corporation with $125 million, making it the wealthiest foundation in the world at the time, to be followed quickly by Rockefeller Foundation.
0: Thanks for giving us that overview. So what in the early decades, what sort of work was the Carnegie Corporation funding? What were their priorities?
1: In the beginning, you know, he, the founder is still alive and uh, they were very much still following his intentions for philanthropy. And two things that would stand out was his funding of libraries and church organs. Again, playing into his vision of philanthropy and capitalism, which was philanthropy was to play a role in enriching the lives of people and still encouraging people to work really hard on their own, you know, lift themselves by their bootstraps. So the idea being that a library was there to enrich people's minds in the community and the church organs to bring in some beauty into the community. So at first, Kearney Corporation, uh, the board would meet at his home in New York and then slowly move on to its own corporate offices. So interesting
0: origins. Now, two of the main characters, at least at the start of your book, are men called Frederick Keppel and Gunnar Murdal. I wonder if you could just tell us about each of those two in in relation to the Carnegie Corporation.
1: Okay, great. So, and then I'm going to inject here my own uh, research strategy for the book. Keppel was president of Carnegie Corporation in the 1920s, into the early 1940s. He was the first one to take this longer span of time as president. Before that, it was Andrew Carnegie and then people with one-year stints, basically. So he plays a large role in shaping the corporation's agenda from the 1920s, 30s, and into the 40s. And Gunnar Myrdal is the grantee whom Keppel invites or to run to direct its study of Black Americans that becomes an American Dilemma. Now, my book is explaining not only Carney Corporation's intentions for the project, so tracing Keppel's reasons for commissioning Myrdal and commissioning this project, but then also Myrdal's own relationship with his funders. So that's really central to the text as well. There is little assumption in the text that just because a funder might want something or has something in mind, that a grantee will necessarily deliver. So, really teasing out how that dynamic plays out. So the book starts out. Explaining the organization that Keppel inherits and how it was shaped by Andrew Carnegie, what Keppel's own ideas, his own relationship with the organization was, how the social science projects that he funded through colonial Africa were in dialogue with his different sets of advisors. So that it was a dialectic. Uh, and then, as well, when Keppel and, and all came together as funder and grantee, how that relationship played out. So to get that nuanced, I would say, like a dance in the archives to understand those relationships. I first start out with a bird's eye view by penetrating the annual reports of the organization from its genesis in the 1910s all the way through the 1940s. After the annual reports, I go into the board of trustee minutes, once understanding some of the notes of of the personal dynamics on the board, because even though from the outside, they might seem equal as board members, people had different personalities and tensions. So then I go into each of those board members' files. Once I do that, then I start understanding the main advisors that they leaned on. And then I look into those advisors' files and then penetrate the grantees' files. So understanding Keppel as an individual, coming with his own ideas, and then Myrdal, as well as his own intellectual coming with his own ideas and how those two came together.
2: Marvel, that's really interesting. And uh, it must have been quite a quite a journey to navigate the very vast numbers of boxes of papers and so on that I know that you uh, you trawled through. I, my question is, in the selection of Gunnar Myrdal, who's obviously a Swedish sociologist, social scientist, can you tell us something about the politics of his appointment and who the other candidates in the United States or elsewhere might have been uh, before they came on to select Myrdal?
1: Yeah, so... What's interesting in the research process was how much symbiosis there was between talks of eugenics and nation state building in the 1920s and 30s, of which Myrdal was a part in Europe with colonial African administration and the intentions of Carney Corporation with its study of Black Americans, which was modeled on, and to this question, on an African survey. Okay, so then I'll backtrack here. Keppel, in the 1920s, inherited an organization that privileged the needs of white people in the Anglo-American world, and it was explicit. This is in the papers and the documents. These are the historical actors speaking. So when he became president, the organization could work in three geographic areas, the United States, Canada, and the British colonies. And the question for Keppel and others on the board would be, what are the United States? Does that include the Philippines, for example? what are the British colonies? And sometimes they had their lawyers come in, but for the British colonies definition, this board member who was lifetime board member, he had been a personal secretary to Andrew Carnegie, uh, said what Andrew Carnegie meant by British colonies was quote unquote communities of whites and not just communities of whites, but communities of whites that could dominate that region. So this means that we will not be funding in West Africa, but we can fund in East Africa. And we can fund in South Africa and New Zealand, even though they're not technically colonies, but because they are communities of whites. And we will never fund in India. Let that sink in. That's actually yep. in the archives. That's in the material. So he's within that framework. And, and he this board member further explained, and anything we fund for non-white people, it's because we're responding to a problem that the white people perceive to have with those groups of people. So if we fund Black education, it's because those white communities see that as a problem worthy of addressing. He himself is very interested in the social sciences. So within this framework of an organization, he starts promoting the funding of cooperative social science projects to help white policymakers address perceived problems in their governance of Black people, basically, and and governing white supremacy and Black subordination. And uh, he's very much inspired to move the organization to British Africa Because a close advisor who becomes his main advisor on all things uh, British Africa, J.H. Oldham, warns that there's a rising consciousness in British Africa that could lead to international unrest that would implicate the U.S. as well. And for these individuals who were coming out of the First World War, including Keppel, that was a fear that there could be another Second World War pretty quickly. So the first project was a poor white study in South Africa in 1932. And the second one that funded by Kearney Corporation under this similar mission was an African survey at Chatham House. So to your question, Anderji, the first individual that Keppel considered for the U.S. analog to an African survey was Lord Haley himself. He was this research model, much like the earlier cooperative study would bring teams of people together. But unlike the South African model, one research person, the research director would be responsible for the final product and the other team would be largely invisible. And uh, furthermore, uh, like an African survey and American dilemma, and unlike the first project, the scope was vast. It would go across geographic regions. So an African survey would go across the continent, an American dilemma would go across the US to help white policymakers across geographies better synchronize their public policies on black people as a way of uh, dominating more effectively. So Haley was the first one. The uh, idea was to have someone with ex- policy experience in uh, imperial spaces, but you know he was unavailable. An African survey just led him into a nervous breakdown, basically. And they looked for, um, he was asking his advisors at Chatham House in the 1930s for other possible directors. The attention he had, though, was that his growing community of U.S. advisors of social scientists suggested that someone from a colonial experience would not be taken as seriously by white social scientists, the social science community. At The same way nobody from a fascist country at the time would be taken seriously as objective as middle ground. And if you're considering the 1930s in Europe and possible um, white European men to direct the project, countries were falling off <laughs> the consideration very quickly. And <laughs> Mirada was already part of the Rockefeller network. So he was considered in the 1920s, one of Rockefellers in the 30s. There's a quote where they said, we really bet on a winning horse. So he was a Rockefeller fellow in 1929 to 30. He and his wife, Alva Reimer-Mirdal. And he was a winning horse because he, from the perspective of the Rockefeller organizations, was doing exactly the kind of social science they wanted, which was applying it to a social problem in Europe in the case of Sweden population problem and finding solutions for it. So even though he wasn't coming from a colonial context like um, Haley, who was an officer in India and, and had done the study in Africa, he was coming with national public policy experience that would blend well with the vision of the U.S. project as analog to an African survey.
2: Were there any African-American social scientists who were even in in the frame for such an appointment? I, I know you mentioned W.E.B. Du Bois among others, in the book as well. And one would think that perhaps, given that he had recognized very early on the centrality of race as a kind of the color, the color line as the key fault line of world politics in the 20th century, was he ever considered?
1: No. So this is a nuance of, in many ways, I'll use a ahistorical term here, but if we're going to apply it to the present, of studying white liberalism. Because, Keppel is someone who really in many ways admired Du Bois and also someone like Adam Locke. And he was in firsthand correspondence with Du Bois. So Keppel and Du Bois corresponded because Du Bois too was trying to finance his encyclopedia, his Pan-African encyclopedia. But at the same time, Keppel would tell him straight, in a very straightforward way, Du Bois, I know you're asking me to finance a trip to South Africa that you want, but I can't do that. I really trust my advisors who again, in brackets here are white South Africans and they just find it problematic for you to go. So I'm not going to finance that. So Du Bois is a highly respect in this network of foundations in the 1930s, including Carney Corporation, Phelps, Stokes, Fund, and Rockefeller organizations. Du Bois is highly respected and feared. They call him, you know, like, I didn't reject Keppel would tell um, one of the main leaders of the Phelps-Stokes fund says, he tells him, I didn't reject the encyclopedia and my board didn't reject the encyclopedia because we think he's a firebrand, but because another reason, but they use the word firebrand. And even when they're talking to him in the thirties, they're suggesting that he's um tamed since they first met him. So it's a level of respect and yet very much keeping two boys in the periphery of funding.
0: So, We've explored the background then, and uh, Gunnar Murdal is ultimately sort of engaged by the Carnegie Corporation to do this massive study, which ends up being published as An American Dilemma. Could you just give us an overview of the scope of that book and what its kind of key arguments were? What was its contribution to how American social scientists were understanding race relations?
1: So this has been a really hard part of writing this book because I always... <laughs> No, it's not the part where it's a two volume study, which honestly, a few people read, you know, from beginning to end. My job is to read really boring texts from the early 20th century. But the hard part is trying to get into the psyche of my readers. So there's a version of an American dilemma that is understood by many white Americans, which is the main message, the framework. And then there's a version of an American dilemma, if you penetrate it one level below. And in that spirit, my book starts out with two quotations from the study, introducing how I'm going to reframe and explain how it was a little bit different than what many Americans might remember it as. And But then I start off with the very traditional narrative of how it's remembered. So with that overall context, Gunnar Myrdal writes in An American Dilemma, Americans also recognize that America has to take world leadership. The coming difficult decades will be America's turn in the endless sequence of main actors on the world stage. America then will have the major responsibility for the manner in which humanity approaches the long era during which the white peoples will have to adjust to shrinkage while the colored are bound to expand in numbers and level of industrial civilization and in political power. For perhaps several decades, the whites will still hold the lead and America will be the most powerful white nation. That's what he expects readers will be able to achieve if they followed his prescription for addressing, quote unquote, race relations in the US. That's not usually how Americans like, many Americans like to remember the study. They like to remember it as more of a study promoting racial equality. So the general narrative is that an American dilemma is a two volume book of extensive research that somehow really connects the data collection with its argument. Those are two different things, right? You can have a, a ton of data collection in the study and still have a framework of a thesis that is floating above the data and not necessarily tied to it. The data collection is bringing groups of people together. He had teams of people, um, including black social scientists such as Ralph Bunch and others. Now his thesis is that there's a gap between Americans' egalitarian ideals and their discriminatory practices against black Americans. So he's specifically saying white Americans are a moral people. And there's a gap that they feel guilty about between their moral egalitarian ideals as a nation, as a a people, and their discriminatory treatment. And I'm going to help you, white Americans, see how you can move forward on this. And he gives his readers a list, endless list and forms of anti-Black discrimination in the book and explains to them that if they go down this list, they will be able to meet their egalitarian ideals. Now, if you penetrate that a little bit more, you realize, okay, the audience here remains white Americans. And he uses terms such as the list that I talked about, he calls a white man's rank order discrimination. So the way that he shapes the list is by understanding the sensibilities of white Americans and the forms of discrimination that they would find really offensive and really hard to part with. So as far as the audience, he writes in the book, that I will be giving primary attention to what goes on in the minds of white Americans because it was a white majority group that naturally determines the place of black people. And I already mentioned the white man's rank order discriminations. And he assumes that if they follow, if white Americans follow this white man's rank order discrimination, they will be able to assimilate black Americans into white American life. And he uses terms such as white levels of living. And he furthermore writes that he assumes That it is to the advantage of Black people as individuals and as a group to become assimilated into American culture, to acquire the traits held in esteem by the dominant white Americans. And why? Because there's an assumption here, and I can talk about its roots in Sweden in the 1930s, between folk making and one nation, which is not very different from Nazi Germany at the time. However, instead of genocide, it's more of a cultural genocide. So it's saying there's only one nation, but people can be assimilated into this one nation. You don't have to kill people. You can right. just encourage that full assimilation. And he he sees that in the U.S. context as well. He says, if Black Americans could be eliminated from America or greatly decreased in numbers, this would meet the whites' approval, provided that it could be accomplished by means which are also approved. So we can go on and on, but in many ways, an American dilemma is complementing the funders' vision of providing a blueprint for white policymakers to address a problem and governance of Black people in the U.S. that would only help fortify white Anglo-American leadership. And this is coming from a place of assuming that international order, national order and international order required white Anglo-American leadership.
2: Maribel, there's really the, the timing of the publication of the study, is it around 1944, is really interesting so that you're at the end or towards the end of a war defined by Nazi race theory to some extent as understood by their behavior and also in the 1930s but there's a there's also a kind of new world order being planned within most countries but particularly Anglo-America and Britain obviously with as the kind of strongest imperial power at that time and the rising imperial power or at least a rising world power It's interesting, there was a speech made by Clement Attlee, who's Deputy Prime Minister, Thanksgiving 1944, where he contrasts Britain and the United States as two melting pot kind of countries, Britain with its Commonwealth, which will be a multiracial Commonwealth, and he contrasts those with Nazi race theory. And uh, it, it sums up really what you just said, which is that in contrast to Nazi race theory, which was kind of could only be solved by one dominant master race and the elimination of others, but that the Anglo-Saxon approach to it was that anyone could become a cultural Anglo-Saxon because of the melting pot philosophy of the United States and of the multiracial Commonwealth. So it's interesting, it's in that kind of pivotal moment, 1944, that you're kind of looking back at where you've been but looking also at the kind of a changing world and I just wondered, what did, what did people think, Keppel and the others, what did they really think would be the reception of Murdahl's book at that particular moment?
1: So the characters, like Keppel, what I found interesting was that they weren't as invested on binaries that we would find important after the Second World War. He He and his advisors were not invested in distinguishing U.S., Race relations, as they would use a term, you know, they're not themselves. That's another tricky part about writing this book, right? Because they're really talking about white Anglo-American supremacy, but they don't use those terms. And committees that they form use terms like race relations, which very much uh, subdues the dynamics of domination of which they're invested in. One binary, like I mentioned, they were not invested in in distinguishing the U.S. experience with British Africa. They're actually invested in learning from each other. But that's something that changes after the second world war. And and Haley, when he's visiting the U S feels he's like "All, all my friends who would like to make these analogies are, are a bit more cautious about making these analogies now, but what he was cautious about Keppel and brought him some anxiety about the book was Myrdal's dismissal of the white South. Okay. So they're both in sync that white Americans should be the main audience for the book, but. Miradol, looking at power relations in the U.S., assumed that this national program could come about with this increased centralized national government during the New Deal, straight from D.C. and from his friends and close networks of people that he most identified with in the North, like New York City. And he said not only is a white South less affluent, they need the New Deal government. uh, They're dependent on it. And plus they're divided. Some of them are a bit more liberal. Some of them are not. Forget them. And so in the book, he peppers it with criticisms of the white South. And Keppel, this brings anxiety for him because in his vision of a white Anglo-American world order, you brought white people together, right? In that for white study in South Africa, the model had been to bring in Afrikaners together with British settlers with a common white identity. So it was counterintuitive for him to dismiss a group of white people that you would think critical for a policy program. And he writes a preface, this foreword, in An American Dilemma. Keppel writes it. One, underscoring how this board member, Baker, that he associated with the first saw so it was very convenient. Newton Baker had passed away by then. So Keppel could do whatever he wanted with the memory of Baker without Baker waking up and contesting it. And he said, Baker was a Southerner and he really wanted the study to happen. So basically for white Southern readers, One of yours wanted this study to happen. And if you see any issues throughout this book, if you actually start reading it in detail, which, you know, I hope you don't. You just read like the general (laughs) takeaways. But if you do, remember, it's not Myrdal's first language. He just messes up in the words he chooses. So that would be the, of anything, that was Keppel's major anxiety. And again, though, I think it's important to note: too many times in a contemporary setting in the U.S. at least, so much attention is placed on where was that person a proponent of segregation or integration. From Keppel's point of view and his network, that was less important than white domination than who was in charge. So even if this one has an assimilationist prescription, which would be very distinct from the public policy prescriptions of the poor white study, it was one in the complete hands and control of white Americans. Not only are they the principal audience, but it's uh, complementing their moral self perceptions and a list of rank order discriminations that they could facilitate as they wished at the speed and content they wished while still feeling morally superior and presenting themselves on the world stage as morally superior. Not too unlike an African survey where Haley is explaining to his readers, specifically in Britain, how they could distinguish themselves from the Germans who wanted their colonies back in Africa. And that they were a morally superior beings who could develop and justify their presence on the continent through development.
0: Lots we could pick up there, but I'm just conscious of time. So I just wondered if you could tell us a bit about how the book then was received by the policymakers they were trying to reach out to. What did we ultimately see in the immediate post war period and onwards? How much currency did this idea of assimilation gain in Washington and in state governments? What happened next?
1: Well, when I would say that even today, and reflected in many Americans at the time, there's so much white supremacy in how white Americans like to define equality. So, there was little question that Blackness, Black culture, Black life, anything is inferior, much like Latinidad, you know, today, that uh, there's sort of like forms of poverty that if you can, you would shed them. So, there wasn't a lot of questioning between assimilation and equality. That's still an assumption of assimilation into white Anglo Americanness. And it was really relatively well-received. Again, Myrtle wrote this book over the span of years within these networks in D.C. and New York and with much collaboration amongst policymakers and the social science community, the dominant one. So it was largely praised. And President Truman created a committee on civil rights and the group was very much inspired by the language of Myrtle. The U.S. Supreme Court in Brown v. Board of Education in 1954 cited Myrtle as justification for, at least in the case of public school education, overturning Plessy v. Ferguson, separate but equal doctrine. That is when the book started getting more criticism from, quote-unquote, the White South. And organizations like Carnegie Corporation started being criticized as potentially red. If Andrew Carnegie had been alive then, I mean, the thought that these organizations built on Gilded Age wealth could be considered red, or any of the staff members would have been laughable. And that's what a lot of the leadership of these organizations thought. It's laughable that we would be considered red. So that was a term, but that would be more in the, in the 50s. There was criticism of this definition of equality. Famously, Ralph Ellison, a Black author and intellectual, criticized Myrdal's assumption that equality required the erasure of Blackness, Black institutions, etc. But he left that critique, that review, unpublished for two decades, until the 60s.
0: Wow. Do we know why?
1: There's the micro of saying, you know, the editor relationship, but just generally, An American Dilemma was such a Bible, something you just didn't question. He would be running against a lot of protectiveness of white liberals who were very much leaders in in funding and publishing.
0: I wonder if I can just go back a little and just pick you up on that criticism from white Southern segregationists that you mentioned that An American Dilemma received. And it feels like there's some quite interesting, complicated politics going on there, because presumably then this message or or the idea of the original scope of the book as a kind of means of maintaining white domination of America, presumably that message was not received or not understood. Because you'd think that then that's quite a compelling reason for Southern segregationists to support the findings of that book and, and to understand the kind of mission of that. So at what point did that message get lost or was it de-emphasized or was it a question of the publicity not being right? <laughs> Thinking with my marketing head on. The way the book was presented and understood presumably changed quite a lot from its earlier original purpose.
1: Keppel passed away before the book was published, so he never got to see its reception. He would have been surprised. He probably, maybe, this is just speculation, this is not in the archives. This is not me speaking as a historian, this is me speaking as someone who's been there for a while in the archives, maybe he would have thought that he should have pushed Miradol more to erase any critique of the white South or to actually, one of the anxieties that, again, and this is building up from it, one of the anxieties he and his advisors, US advisors had about Miradol was that he wasn't seemingly getting into the sensibilities of the psyche of the white South during his time there. And it's a big worry from his Rockefeller networks as well. So I think, Ultimately, the conversation became segregation versus integration in the U.S. So if an organization was backing integration or assimilation, really, they were necessarily against segregation. It's like, So the conversation on what it meant to maintain white domination in the U.S. just shifted into this binary.
0: Can you zoom out a bit then and, and tell us a bit about how this book related to the wider Carnegie project of international order formation I guess like these organizations were very much involved in the post-war environment as well the new international system functioned and I think I mean Inderjeet maybe it would be good to have your opinion on this as well but over sort of several decades since it feels like the racial underpinnings of that order have been downplayed in the academic circle so could you tell us how an American dilemma fits into that whole narrative and that order building project?
1: So, we can even go back to Andrew Carnegie himself, right? Even today at Carnegie Corporation, they might talk about his support of international peace. But if you read Triumphant Democracy, one of his books, which was published in the 1880s, 1890s, different editions, he talks about a British American union, the value of bringing together an English speaking race. And he gives a lecture in 1907 at the Philosophical Institute in Edinburgh, Scotland, where he talks about Black education and why he finances it and provides it as a model. For other parts of the British Empire and their governance of other colonized groups. So if you start connecting the dots between seemingly non quote unquote non-racial terms like international peace, international order, and union, you start seeing that it is very racialized. And from the very, you know, from the very genesis of some of these organizations' founders, including Carnegie at Carnegie Corporation. And then American Dilemma is a reflection of those institutional priorities. So Keppel. Much like a lot of other people at these organizations or, you know, our peers, fear international disorder and want to promote international peace. I mean, that's where his psyche was. One of my assumptions, I don't know about you, Inderjee, but when I'm in the archives, I assume that everyone has their Fruit Loops in the morning and wants to do good in the world or their own, their own perception of what it is. <laughs> okay. They might not eat Fruit Loops. They might have different breakfast. I'm kidding. but So that was his frame of mind trying to, within the constraints of his own organization and his own assumptions, do good. Now, by self-reflection, we can do better. So this is a critical an engagement with that project. And what he thought he was doing good was in helping other policymakers, yes, who happen to be white. Yes, because of that, he trusted as his advisors to give objective, quote unquote, information so we can critically engage with all these different terms. And then American Dilemma was part of that project in the sense that he had been alerted by Baker. Well, he used that opportunity on his board. He said, okay, Baker says there's a problem with our funding of Black schools in the U.S. Baker has just told, he stood up at the board meeting and said in the 1930s, if we really want to do something about, quote unquote, the problem of Black people, which is basically the problem of Black people's very existence, you know, however you want to frame it, it's either like the problems they associated with them or assumptions about lack of development, et cetera, et cetera, just Black people generally then we can't just focus anymore on funding schools in the South and funding agricultural and industrial, because I'm living in Cleveland and I see urban unrest, crime, and illness. And if we really want to do something about this problem, it has to be national. Boom. Keppel is jumping on this because even a year before he wanted to change his funding priority, but that was Andrew Carnegie had established it himself. So that's really hard for a president to shift from, especially when you have lifetime members on the board who were his personal secretaries. And so he takes that opportunity to suggest this analog to an African survey. It's supposed to be national in scope, but Miradol at the end, in the evolution of the project explains how this national project could inform and further strengthen white Anglo-American domination internationally, especially during the Second World War. As Indrajit was mentioning, it's this pivotal moment of shift. Uh, thinking about being connected to the past, but also the future beyond the Second World War.
2: That story of Anglo-American dominance and the racialized basis of that is very overt in the period that you're talking about, Maribel. But I think things change, if you like, through the course of the Second World War with Japan's military triumphs, puncturing white superiority in Asia, at least. But then also you get... The Cold War onset from 1947, which introduces uh, then from 1949 with China as well, a non-Western power, as well as the rise of independence movements, and particularly the, what is called the Revolution of 1947, the, the freedom for India. And then later followed by you know, obviously Pakistan and Ceylon at that time. And then later in the late 50s, uh, Ghana, Nigeria, etc. So I think there are sort of big changes in the world order, And big changes in relation to the idea of race and how loudly you can speak about it. So white superiority was the scientific open conclusion in the 1880s to the 1920s. But in a new world where the Soviet Union and China are using racism and anti-colonialism as ways of recruiting the newly independent Asian and African states, uh, you can't speak about that much more. And they're pointing to South Africa and Rhodesia, and uh, the Deep South, and so on. And later on, to the colour bar in Britain as well, by the late 1950s into the 1960s. Second thing, of course, is you know, the, the assertion of the Asian and African powers themselves. So in a way, the attention to white opinion, white liberals, as what are you going to do? How are you going to act in this new situation? It suggests that, At a certain time, you could talk openly about white supremacy and be a white supremacist, and that solved the problem of race through domination. But now you couldn't. So that, in effect, race becomes an embarrassment. And I think there's a kind of race silencing which goes on to manage racial sensibilities. It still is. How will white settler communities in Kenya, uh, Rhodesia, South Africa, etc., deal with the rise of African power, for example? So it's from their perspective... And it becomes largely a project of how do you manage the emotional reactions of Africans to the position of having suffered racism and then reacting to it? How do you moderate that conflict and effectively ease it out of the politics of those countries and the politics of the world? In which, as Murdal you quoted saying, where the white race is diminishing in size relative and in relative power... So I think in a way, it's interesting that your question, Ben, is about the liberal international order, that you've got the kind of theorization of the position of race within by liberals of what a liberal view of world order according to race should be and where it should sit. And to some extent, obviously, Chatham House plays quite an important role in Britain in that particular period through the formation of this Institute of Race Relations, which is very interesting as well.
1: Yes, Indraji, I see the same. I think, again, to your point, An American Dilemma is between these eras. Because to Ben's question too, how could the marketing job have been so bad? It's not the prominent way, the prominent thesis, the framework of the study. There are many, many ways you can read this book and never penetrate its white supremacist assumptions or even the words, right? So, but it's there to your point, Inderjeet, it's being phrased differently. So it's being phrased as a form of equality. You know, much like an African survey pivoting to development instead of simply domination, and so these terms seemingly progressive, and yet they're still very rooted in the ways that these networks of individuals were talking about white supremacy two minutes ago. So sometimes it just requires a little bit more digging because they they won't say it explicitly from the start, but it's there.
2: Absolutely, I think I've been doing a little bit of work on Chatham House for one of their publications and my topic is on the Board of Race Relations, formed in 1952 to 1958 within Chatham House, and the principal issues there highlighted were the prevention of the fusion of the race question in world politics with the Cold War politics of communism and so on, and that if those two forces were to fuse, that is, non-white races were to fuse their opposition to the West with the communist powers, that that would be the end of Western civilization and so on. There was that kind of racial anxiety and racial fear of kind of like a black planet or a non-white planet, which was really deeply motivating this kind of movement. But among the liberal progressives, the idea was, look, it was bad what happened as a result of empire and colonialism. We have to recognise that there were kind of big problems. But the issue now is how do we manage ourselves and our power in this new world? That means accepting the idea of equality But along with assimilation, and later on, the term integration becomes more significant. That initially it was, yes, you assimilate and become white in culture and so on, but later on it was suggested that you would integrate into a multicultural community, that no longer can you have one nation, but these countries like Britain, for example, are going to have to be multinational in character and people are going to have to give and take. But I think the principle position from which they're thinking remains for most of that time, white sensibility. So the idea of race difference remains fundamental. And if you have race difference, then it's natural that there will be resentment for immigration and so on. So they're quite influential in that kind of discourse shift at that time.
1: And even that, I think when we think about um, when Hillary Clinton lost the election and Donald Trump won, and we're moving it further into the present, even how people the general culture will respond with different heightened sensibilities. So really studying quote unquote white poverty, where did that anxiety for voting for Trump come from and wanting to address poverty, you know, amongst white Americans or, you know, anxieties about labor and not having that same sensibility for minorities in the same uh, socioeconomic class or the struggles that they experience too. So sometimes we, like you were saying energy, it might not be so blatant of saying, I'm in favor of white Anglo-American supremacy. But even what kickstarts our national sensibilities of defining what the problem was or whose needs should be met first really roots us in that history. One book I can recommend is Tiffany Willoughby-Herard's Waste of a White Skin, where she talks about the connection between the stories of white poverty and how it's central for our continued um, white nation-making.
0: That whole exchange was so fascinating, just thinking about the present day and and this moment. Obviously, you've been working on this book, Marabella, at a time where the politics of race have become front and center of the conversation in the us and also across the world with the black lives matter movement and to your point indigi where you were talking about that kind of conflation of racial equality and and socialism and fears about communism and reds under the bed and stuff in the 50s and 60s it's been so interesting and and worrying to see how movements like black lives matter have been politicized by its opponents as left-wing, as socialists that want to bring down society and that whole kind of undermining of the basic principle of racial equality. So just as we're coming to the end, Maraba, I suppose, could you speak a bit more to you know, how these ideas that you've uprooted, that you've found through this book, how these ideas are still kind of resonating today and what you think... The policymakers of today need to be taking from this episode, from the whole (laughs) history of the creation of an American dilemma.
1: Black Lives Matter to me is a movement underscoring the need for freedom from police brutality, freedom from boilerplate responses from companies, from universities, from governments to these protests. So, one question I would ask ourselves is why is uh, Black Lives Matter so threatening? to many people, like why is it threatening for a people who have experienced absolute anti-black discrimination, violence, perpetration from state and non-state actors surprising or why, how has it not met with love? And I use love because if there is a love of mankind and we talk about that in the world of philanthropy, then how could those cries not be met with absolute love and sincerity? So I think if we're connecting it with the past, there's a deep, deep fear of rising racial consciousness, specifically amongst Black people across geographies. And realizing, as Inderjee was mentioning too, you know, like the realization of subjugation and possible retaliation. It, what happened, happened, and we have to confront it. So I would say that the echoes are the fear of that realization. The fear, too, of sitting across the table as equals on the international stage, The fear of a, a world order free of domination. I don't think any of us, like it's a really hard concept to wrap ourselves around. But I will read a quote from Du Bois because I think I end the book with it. We assume so much that international peace requires domination, but that doesn't really make sense. right? How can you have peace with domination? Uh, and he really said it in Color and Democracy, published in 1945. He wrote, he both observed and predicted, the hope of the world lay in the union of Britain and the United States to dominate mankind. Yet up from the throats of these people, the colonials, the minorities, and the depressed classes, one increasing cry for freedom, democracy, and social progress continually wells. So no matter how many reports, studies, funded, not. Go to white policymakers, no matter how much they influence public policymaking and foundations can feel really good about measuring how the grantees are impacting public policymaking. No matter how many of these projects happen, as forms of placating or trying to control those cries, those cries will persist.
0: That's a fantastic quote. Thank you so much. indiji I just wondered, I mean, it's hard to follow that, but I, I wonder if you could just give us a sense, uh, just finally, of what you've taken away from, from Maribel's book. What do you think is that kind of really moment that stuck with you?
2: Well, I, I think what I really enjoyed about reading the book and, and learned from it is the kind of continuities which I see from the open discussion of white supremacy through a period When it was scientifically, allegedly scientifically uh, supportable, uh, it was the kind of dominant culture. It was related to this sort of racial or social Darwinism, national Darwinism, survival of the fittest, to a period in which the world shifts very, very powerfully towards kind of freedom, independence and national sovereignty, as well as with the rise of communism and so on. And so I think there's a kind of bridge Uh, from a kind of world where you could openly be white supremacist to one where you actually have to now accept that the balance of world forces, racial forces, and so on, has shifted. The other thing, of course, is the kind of depth of study of archives in multiple sources, multiple countries, with such kind of care. There's a famous quote from Charles Beard, one of the kind of uh, progressive historians in the United States, where he, he says that historians should study so well but their subject that no fool dares to tread in that area again and make the same mistakes that they made in the past. And I think Maribel's book has uh, more than lived up to that particular way of uh, doing history that uh, Charles Beard uh, talked about. So I took a great deal of value from Maribel's study here, uh, and I think others will as well.
1: And Indraji, I, I also want to flag your own influence on my work and how much I've learned from your scholarship as well. I've long admired it. And specifically in writing the book, White Philanthropy, I learned so much and leaned so much on your book, Think Tanks and Power and Foreign Policy, which Ben mentioned, uh, a comparative study of the role and influence of the Council on Foreign Relations and the Royal Institute of International Affairs, also known as Chatham House. I think it's so important as a scholar to acknowledge all the work behind the making of our own projects, all the secondary literature as well. So we might go into the archives and gain precise primary documents and it is a contribution to the literature, but we are also building from a vast community of scholars, hopefully across the world, though there's still a white domination in our knowledge making. And a lot of our scholars that we lean on are based in the global North and specifically the US and UK. That said, your book really helped illustrate the white world making and the role of two knowledge producing organizations in that project. So I'm in debt to you as well. Thank you so much.
0: Yeah, fantastic. I really, really learned so much. And thank you both for your time. And Maribel, uh, congratulations on on the publication of White Philanthropy. Everybody should go and grab a copy. There's a link in our show notes for this episode. Uh, just left for me to say thanks, both of you, for joining us.
1: Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much, Ben and Indrajeet.
0: All right, that's it for this episode of Undercurrents. Thanks so much for listening through to the end. I hope you found it as interesting as I did when I was recording it. This is probably the latest in a series of different episodes that we've done over the last couple of years, reflecting on different elements of Chatham House's past as a research institute. And I think some of the aspects that we touched on there with the African survey by Lord Haley and Other projects that Carnegie funded at the Royal Institute of International Affairs, I think gives us a lot to reflect on as much as the content on An American Dilemma. We're coming towards the end of our 2021 season of Undercurrents. It's been a really, really fun one to record, even though we've been dealing with remote working and the pandemic and the disruption that that causes, of course, to uh, the way that we do podcasts. Thank you very much for sticking with us and uh, hopefully you've noticed that the quality of our recording has improved quite a lot in recent weeks since we've been able to get back into the media studio. Hopefully, fingers crossed, 2022 will be a lot smoother, but we have a couple more episodes to release before Christmas. If you don't want to miss those episodes, I would highly recommend that you subscribe to the podcast on whichever app you're using to listen to this. And if you could, while you're doing that, just... Leave us a review and rate the podcast, hopefully give it some nice words. It really, really helps the discoverability of the podcast and and hopefully will allow us to reach new listeners. And then more broadly, if you want to keep in touch with Chatham House's work across all aspects of international affairs, then the best thing to do is to check out our website www.chathamhouse.org, where you can find out all the information on what we're publishing, what we're featuring in events how you can sign up to our newsletters or even become a member of Chatham House. It's all there. Check it out and hope to see you soon in the building. In the meantime, thank you very much for joining me and have a great week.